C.S. Lewis once wrote, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone, Lewis says, to rouse a deaf world. How true has this been in so many of our lives? Consider how God has used painful experiences in your own life to save you or to change you. What we're going to see in our passage this morning, Isaiah 27, is that what's true in our own lives and the way that God uses bitter providences to draw us to himself and to change us is what we're going to see in elect Israel. The big idea of our passage, that is the second half of Isaiah 27, is really not much different than what we saw last week. We're really looking at the chapter in two weeks, that is the gospel according to Isaiah. And the big idea is this, this is my sermon in a sentence, that God will scatter his people in order to save his people and restore them to true worship in his city. God will scatter his people in order to save his people and to restore them to true worship in his city. These last seven verses really break down into two halves. In verses seven through nine, we're gonna see a picture of two peoples. And in verses 10 through 13, we're gonna see a picture of two cities. A picture of two peoples and a picture of two cities. We're going to begin in verse 7, considering a picture of two peoples. And in this section, verses 7, 8, and 9, we're going to see God do three things. In verse 7, God is going to spare his elect. And he spares his elect so that, as we'll see in verse 8, he can scatter his elect. And in that scattering, Verse 9, God will save his elect. God is going to spare them. He is going to scatter them so that he might save them. Pick it up at verse 7 with me and follow along. He has struck them. The them is speaking of Jacob and Israel. Back up in verse 6. That's who we talked about this last week. That is elect Israel, those Israelites, those Hebrew people, the Jews that will turn and trust in Christ. He has struck them as he has struck those who struck them, or has he struck them rather, as he struck those who struck them? Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? You notice that Isaiah maximizes the rhetorical effect by coupling two sets of triplets has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? And have they been slain as their slayers were slain? Of course, the emphasis is on the striking and the slaying. And here, the questions are being asked. Why hasn't God dealt with elect Israel in the same way that he's dealt with all of the other nations, which he had covered in chapters 13 through 23? 
Why hasn't God dealt with elect Israel in the same way that he's dealt with all of the other nations? Why haven't they too been struck and slain in their sin? And what does this have to do, ultimately, verse 6, with them filling the whole world with fruit? Or maybe we could pose the question in another way, a way that hits a little bit more close to home. If you are a Christian today, why hasn't God given you what you justly deserve? The old hymn writer Isaac Watts put this theology, these questions into words when he wrote, while all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cries with thankful tongue, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? The only reason that God spared elect Israel is the only reason, believer, that God has spared you. And that is his free and sovereign electing grace. But in our brief flashes of unbelief, those moments when we try to plumb the depths of God and, and, and circumscribe him by our own reason, we question why has God chosen some and not others? How can this God be a good God? But knowing what we know about the sinfulness of our sin, the better question might actually be, why has God chosen to save anybody at all? For God to freely choose to save just one or two sinners, oh, that would be to the glory of His grace. But if God has freely chosen to save not just one or two, but a people whose number is like the stars of the sky and like the sands of the seashore, oh, brothers and sisters, the glory of His grace is incomprehensible. That's why in Romans 11, the Apostle Paul's only response to the doctrine of election was, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways Beloved, this is the humbling effect of God's electing grace. It reminds us that there was and is nothing in us that can commend us to God. We belong to Him because He set His love on us in Christ before the foundation of the world, before you and I ever did anything good and before you and I ever did anything bad. He has loved us in Christ. Not only that, when we are truly humbled by the fact that we have been spared by God in spite of our many sins against Him, that He has saved us rather than slain us, well, then that begins to change the way that we live in the world, especially our other relationships, especially toward those who sin against us. Brothers and sisters, when somebody sins against you, whether it be a spouse or a child, a coworker or a friend, maybe a fellow member in the church or even a leader in your church, whoever it may be, I'm sure for each one of us, the list is long of those who have wounded us. 
Will you slay them or will you spare them? Do you eviscerate them in your thoughts and strike them down with your words? Do you punish them and hold them in contempt until they do enough to pay off their debt against you? Oh, brothers and sisters, consider how contrary this is to the way that God has treated you in Christ. Remember that you were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Recall the great love with which God has loved you even in all of your transgressions against him. And in remembering and recalling these things, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4, put away your bitterness and your wrath and your anger and your slander and your malice. And instead, he says, aim by God's grace to be kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving as God in Christ has forgiven you. When we are humbled by the reality of God's electing grace in our lives, that before we did good or bad, that he has set his love on us, then that begins and should, by the Spirit of God, burn away all of the bitterness and the self-righteousness, the leveraging of our own righteousness over and against others, of holding others in contempt, of believing that we should be repaid what we're owed when offenses are against us, and it should make us more tender, more forgiving, in the same way that God has been toward us in Christ. This is what the doctrine of election does, is it humbles us. It not only transforms our relationship to God, but it transforms our relationship to others. Why has he not slain us? Because he has loved us before the foundation of the world, and he has set his grace upon us in Christ. So we've seen and remembered in verse 7 that God will spare his elect. But how will God spare his elect? That's the next big question. And the answer to that question is found in verse 8. That God will spare his elect by scattering his elect. Look at this. Measure by measure by exile you contended with them. He removed them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. What did God do to save his elect from Israel? Isaiah now turns and addresses God directly, and he says, by exile, you contended with them. That Hebrew word translated contend in verse 8 carries the connotation of a lawsuit. It has a legal connotation to it. All of the prophets, much like Isaiah, what they were is they were covenant prosecutors, and their job was to bring God's old covenant people into God's courts where God would contend with them where God would bring a lawsuit against them. You see, when God entered into covenant with Israel, he told them that as long as they obeyed his law, well, then he would dwell with them and they would dwell in Canaan. But if they broke covenant with God, well, then God told them what would happen. Listen to God's words to Israel, Deuteronomy 28. He says, if you break covenant with me, I will scatter you among the nations from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods. Store that in your mind. It's going to be important later. 
And among these nations, you'll find no respite. There'll be no resting place for your feet. And all you'll have is a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. Deuteronomy 28, 64 and 65. Well, in verse 8, God is keeping his covenant promise. He is pressing a lawsuit against Israel. And how is he doing it? He's doing it by scattering them to the nations. But notice in verse 8 that this scattering isn't going to happen all at once. It happens measure by measure. We see this happen in history. Part of Israel was first scattered around 720 BC after the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered by the Assyrians. And then Babylon conquered Assyria, and then 150 or so years later, the northern, after the northern kingdom fell in 587 BC, Babylon seized the southern kingdom and Jerusalem, and they exported most of the southern kingdom. So both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom have now been taken away and exiled among the nations. The book of Daniel, in fact, is all about one man's life as an exile in Babylon. Well, around 50 years later, small portions of exiled Hebrew people from Assyria and especially Babylon began to return to Jerusalem where they would build a second temple. And you can read all about that in Ezra and Nehemiah. But brothers and sisters, our Bible doesn't end in Ezra and Nehemiah. That return was not the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise. It was pointing to an even greater restoration, one that would be spiritual, not physical, not national, and not geographical. But even then, the scattering is not done. The final measure of the scattering of Israel would happen in 70 AD following the Jewish war against Rome in the year 68. Both Jerusalem and the second temple were utterly destroyed. And with that, the Jews were scattered once and for all to the nations. And to this day, the temple has not been rebuilt. And God says in verse 8, that is how I will contend with my people. This is the lawsuit that I'm pressing against them. This is their payment for covenant unfaithfulness. But as I said, brothers and sisters, that is not the end of the story. Because rather than destroy his people, God spared them. And in verse 8, he instead scattered them. And he spared them and scattered them. So that as we see in verse 9, he might save them. Therefore, by this... The guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. And this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces, no asherim or incense altars will remain standing. You notice in the first line of verse 9 we read, By this the guilt of Israel's guilt will be atoned for. By this. What is the this referring to? Well, it's referring to the scattering of verse 8. God is going to save his elect from Israel by scattering Israel. But I want us to be really clear about something before we move on. The exile itself is not ultimately the grounds of their salvation. No, brothers and sisters, we know that there is no other grounds for salvation, nothing else that can wash away sins, nothing but the blood of Jesus. No, the exile won't be the grounds for elect Israel's salvation, but it will be the means for their salvation. The grounds for their salvation isn't ultimately a change of address, as we see in verse 9. The grounds of their salvation is atonement. That's why we read, the sins of Jacob will be atoned for. 
You see, when Isaiah was preaching, his audience would have made an immediate connection to that word, atone. The Hebrew word translated atone there is the same word that's used in the phrase Yom Kippur, day of atonement or day of covering. The imagery would immediately transport Isaiah's audience back to the mercy seat. And what takes place once a year in the Holy of Holies when the blood of a lamb is sprinkled on the mercy seat. You see, that mercy seat sat on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark of the Covenant were the two tablets of law that were given to Moses by God. And that law of the covenant, as the writer of Hebrews says, cries out for vengeance like the blood of Abel from the ground. But when the blood of the lamb is sprinkled on the mercy seat by the great priest, by the high priest, God would see that blood of the substitute instead of his broken law. And by that blood, his wrath against Israel would be propitiated. It would be satisfied and averted. Israel's sins would be forgiven and they would be allowed to remain in the land at least temporarily. But that holy place and that mercy seat and all of those priests and all of those offerings that were given year after year after year, those were but a shadow pointing to something greater than itself. But now, says the writer to Hebrews, Christ has appeared as high priest of the good things to come. And has entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and of calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul glories in Christ's propitiating work. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Oh, and then nobody brings the atoning work of Christ quite so close to the heart of sinners like the apostle whom Jesus loved. John writes, in this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The one who would satisfy God's wrath against us. The one who would avert it from us. Brothers and sisters, you have been saved not because God is without wrath. You have been saved because God's wrath against you has been satisfied by the blood of Christ. He is our propitiation. So how is it here in verse 9 then that God will use the scattering of Israel as the means whereby he'll save his elect and apply to them the atoning work of Christ? Well, at this point, I want you to remember what we learned last week in Romans 11. That was just setting us up for, for what we're talking about now. You may remember that Israel rejected the gospel, and in rejecting the gospel, God scattered the Jews out to the nations. And elect Israel, who are now scattered to the nations, will hear the gospel being preached among the Gentiles. And when they hear it, God is going to open their eyes to see, and they're going to have their ears open so that they might hear it, and they're going to yearn for it with a godly jealousy. And that godly jealousy will lead them to acknowledge not only their covenant-breaking sin, 
but it'll lead them to throw themselves on God's mercy. They will confess with their mouths in that day Christ Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God has raised him from the dead and they will be saved. Brothers and sisters, how many of us were saved not during prosperous seasons, but painful seasons? When we were at the bottom of the barrel, when we were devastated by our sinful decisions or by the sins of others against us. When we were sunk by loneliness or shame, or have experienced some loss of worldly security that left us unstable and scattered in the world. Richard Sibbs sums this truth up well. He writes, let this support us when we feel ourselves bruised. Christ's way is first to wound, then to heal. I've done over 100 membership interviews since we planted North Point Church six years ago. And while God has saved all of you in lots of different means, in all different kinds of seasons of life, it's humbling to observe how, God, how often God has used seasons of bitter providence to shatter your pride and to draw you to Christ. Well, according to God's promise through Isaiah, God is going to do the same for elect Israel. He is going to scatter them and shatter them in order to save them. But we see something else here. Look at the second line of verse 8. Isaiah says, And this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. So Isaiah just showed us the means for their salvation, that is exile, and the grounds of their salvation, that is atonement, and now he turns his attention to the fruit of their salvation. What will elect Israel do? What will they look like when they're finally converted by the grace of God? Do you remember what God promised would happen to Israel if they broke covenant? I told you to store it away. That he would exile them to the nations, and he said, there you will serve other gods. Well, here in verse 9, we see the redeemed from Israel smashing those gods, those idols into dust. The curse has been lifted. True conversion is always followed by a godly sorrow for sin and repentance. Put another way, the fruit of our salvation is the pulverization of our idols. And yet none of us repents perfectly, do we? Because the fruit of conversion is not a once and for all repentance like an atomic bomb that wipes out all of your indwelling sin in one shot. The fruit of conversion is an ongoing posture of repenting and of trusting in Christ, of turning and of trusting, of daily crucifying our flesh because we have been crucified with Christ. Believer, don't buy the lie that repenting of sin over and over means that you've never truly repented. That confuses your sanctification with your glorification. Sanctification means more repentance by God's grace. Glorification means no more repentance by God's grace. And so lest we fall into a perfectionistic view of the Christian life, sanctification, that is growing in the grace of God, looks like more, not less, repentance from sin. It looks like more, not less, trusting in Christ and His righteousness. 
In fact, beloved, let me encourage you one step further that as you set yourself to daily crucifying the flesh and daily smashing your idols, remember that Christ is not standing far off from you, leaving you to contend with your sins all by yourself. John writes, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anybody does sin, then we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Dane Ortland, in his excellent little book, Gentle and Lowly, reminds us that when we are tasked with leaving behind our sin and smashing our idols, quote, we need not only exhortation, we need liberation. We need not only Christ as king, but we need Christ as a friend. Not only over us, but next to us. And so who, according to John, is this advocate for? He says it's for anyone who sins. And when will sinners receive Christ's advocacy? It is right now. John tells us we have an advocate. Not that we will have an advocate. It is right now we have an advocate. And why is it that this advocate is able to help us? Oh, well, John tells us. Because he is righteous. Ortlin again, quote, Even our best repenting of our sin is itself plagued with more sin, needing more forgiveness. To come to the Father without an advocate is hopeless. To be allied with an advocate, one who came and sought me out rather than waiting for me to come to him, one who is righteous in all the ways that I am not, oh, this is calm and confidence before the Father. Brothers and sisters, consider your own life. What do you think is Jesus' attitude toward those dark corners of your life that only you know about? About your dependency on alcohol. Those gluttonous moments when you find your comfort not in God but in food. Those fits of rage toward your spouse or your kids or in your heart toward others over and over and over again. What about that paralyzing fear of others or the habitual use of pornography? Who is Jesus in those moments of spiritual darkness? Not who is he once you conquer that sin, but who is he in the midst of that sinning? When those idols erect themselves again, beloved, listen to me. Christ, he is your greater Gideon who comes next to you to help you tear them down. He is your advocate. Ortland again puts it better than I can. He says Jesus is our paraclete, that is advocate. He is our comforting defender. The one nearer than we know. And his heart is such that he stands and speaks in our defense when we sin. Not after we get over it. 
And in that sense, his advocacy is itself our conquering of it. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. It might be worth stopping right here in the sermon. If it weren't the case, the last handful of verses were equally marvelous. Because in verses 10 through 13, an incredible reversal is promised. A turning of the tide, so to speak. Before we look at it, it's good for us to remember that this entire section in Isaiah, beginning in chapter 24 all the way to 27, has really all been about two cities. It's been about the city of man on the one hand, the city that is built by man's pride apart from God, and the city of God, the city of Zion, the new Jerusalem. And here is what we're going to see in the last few verses of this section on the cities. God is going to take the visceral experience of Israel being ransacked and plundered and he's going to give it a spiritual application. That in the same way that Babylon and Assyria invaded and plundered the cities of Israel, taking away its people, God says, so I am going to plunder the city of man and I'm going to take away my people. In verses 10 and 11, we'll see the city of man plundered. And then in verses 12 and 13, we'll see the city of God populated. We'll see the city of man plundered, and we'll see the city of God populated. Look at verse 10. For the fortified city is solitary, a habitation deserted and forsaken like the wilderness. There the calf grazes. There it lies down and strips its branches when its bows are dry, they are broken. Women come and make a fire from them. Ah, oh, for this is a people without discernment. Therefore, he, is made, he who has made them will not have compassion on them. He who formed them will show them no favor. Isaiah gives an image of the city of man being plundered and emptied. There's no blessing in the land. It is dry and fruitless. God's elect have been snatched out of the city of man and they have been taken into the city of God and the only people who remain now in the city of man are those who are deserted and forsaken along with a herd of cows eating broken branches. And in verse 11... When people in the land go to gather sticks for a fire, what they're supposed to discern when they see this parched land is that they are the ones who have been forsaken. They, they should look at it and say, this is me. I need to return to the Lord. We need to look to him for compassion and we need to look to him to favor that is grace. But as you can see, this solitary city, this city of man, it is inhabited only with those that have no spiritual discernment. We recalled how God exiled Israel and left behind a barren, forsaken, and war-torn land. Well, that barren land, that broken down Jerusalem is meant to be a mirror for Israel to examine their own hearts. 
But non-elect Israel will not see it. And they will not discern it. And they will not turn to the one who made them. And so they will find no compassion. And they will find no grace. In the end, there will be no fruit in the city of man. Why? Because God has plundered the city of man and he has stolen away all of his people to bear fruit elsewhere in the world. That he has plundered the domain of darkness and he is populating the kingdom of his beloved son. Verse 12. In that day from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain and you, elect Israel, you, Jacob and Israel, you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown and those who were lost in the land of Israel and those who were driven out of the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Every one of God's elect among the surviving remnant of Jacob will hear the trumpeting of the gospel of Jesus Christ and they will be brought by God's grace to repent and believe in the gospel. And God will glean them, as the passage says, one by one from among the nations so that all of those who are driven out from the land will ultimately come and worship the Lord at the holy mountain in Jerusalem. I love this. The entire section in Isaiah 24 to 27 is bookended by these two glorious truths. Isaiah 24, the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. And Isaiah 27, Jacob will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain in Jerusalem. The Lord reigns, Jacob will worship. That is the gospel according to Isaiah. That is the glory of the grace of God in election. And so what will our response be in that day when we see ourselves counted among this number? Oh, brothers and sisters, it won't be, why has God saved some and not others? It will be, why has God saved us at all? It will be, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. That is the gospel according to Isaiah. Let's pray.